and the children may be dismissed. They can meet their teachers uh, in the back of the auditorium. If you have been uh, with us on this journey this fall, we've been looking through, uh, studying through the book of Colossians, and we've seen some amazing things that Paul has told us about what it means to be a Christian, what is true of the world. And we've seen that Christ is the center of our hope. He is our image. He is the icon that we follow. He is our reconciliation, our treasure. He is our captor. He's our resurrection. And now in the last four Sundays, we begin to take some of those gigantic truths and unpack them for what it means to live out those truths. As he does in other epistles, Paul moves from the indicative, what is true of the world, what is true of you, what is true of God, into now imperatives. What would that look like if you really believe that? It's not simply a list of shoulds. It's a list of responses. It's a list of, of indicatives about what lo- those people look like that believe these things. That if you really believe that Christ is your center, then your life over time will begin to look and resemble the list that Paul begins to work out for us. Now, we're looking this morning at one small part of that, Colossians 3, 1 through 11. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, let me read, and then we'll pray for us. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Let's pray now for our time together. Father, we pray that you would indeed apply the power of your gospel to our hearts and to every soul and mind that is here this morning. Would you bind up that which is broken? Would you restore those who are hurting? Would you comfort the brokenhearted? Would you begin to heal those lives who, that are falling apart in our congregation? Lord, I pray that you would reveal through this passage the great salvation that you have for your people, that you would preach your gospel to our heart yet again. Lead us in this time. Let us encounter you in all of your grace and your mercy, as well as in your instruction. Father, we pray now as we engage this passage that you would engage us with the center of the kingdom, with the center of the world, with Jesus himself, we pray in his name. Amen. We've come really to the very central passage of our whole study, that a Christian is one for whom Jesus has become this very center 
of their life, that he is your life, as Paul says. And for the one for which this is true, that they set their hearts, they set their minds on that which is above. They set their hearts and minds on heavenly things, not on earthly things. In other words, your focus, your center of attention, your focal point is Jesus himself. Now, what do we say about a person who is commonsensical, who's rational, who's very normal? What do we say? What do we call them? We say they're very down to earth. And those people who are very dreamy, those who are irrational, who are not practical, what do we say about them? They have their head in the clouds, right? Paul is saying exactly the opposite. He is saying those who are heavenly minded, those who have their hearts and minds focused upon that which is above, actually have the life that is most human. That that otherworldly mindset actually is very here and now. That it changes the way that they go about life. That in fact, those people who are otherworldly minded, those people who have their hearts and minds set upon Jesus are the most stable, the most rational, the most centered in the whole world. Heavenly minded people are very practical. They're very real because they've come alive in this world with the truths of the next. We're going to look at what it means to be heavenly minded, the essence, what it is, as well as the practice. How do you get it? How do you begin to be heavenly minded? So first of all, essence and then practice. Joseph Campbell was one of the great literary critics of the 20th century, also an author in his own right. And he, as he began to study English literature primarily, as well as the ancient myths and the ancient legends, as well as film, he began to notice this repeated pattern that that all of these great stories, especially the hero myths, had these elements within it that were across culture and were across genre. And what he called it was the monomyth, the one thing, the one thread that was through all of these stories. And it's a classic hero motif. That someone who has had a very life-altering experience or triumph that allows them to see beyond the here and now, beyond their ordinary world, that they begin to see the beyond world, the true world, what is really true about them and what is really true about reality. And as a hero, they begin to take that truth, that experience, that triumph from the other world and invest it in the here and now. They begin to live differently because of this experience. That's the hero motif that Joseph, Joseph Campbell began to notice. Now, one of these stories that, if I was smart, I would have saved for Advent is Charles Dickens' A, a Christmas Carol. And you know Scrooge. Scrooge is the cynical, miserly person, very hateful, very uncaring towards anyone else. And he has this major type of hero experience, this conversion experience that happens in sort of another world that he encounters truth that he has never seen before. He has these three spirits that begin to speak into his life and say, did you know this? Have you noticed this? Have you thought about that? He begins to question his whole experience in the here and now based upon this experience that he's having in this other dimension, this other world. At the end of Scrooge's ordeal, he's transformed from this miserly, kind of hateful, rude person into this very chipper, very generous, very cheerful, bubbly lover of humanity 
who can miraculously see the beauty in everyone. Now, what's really happened to Scrooge underneath all of these charming events and the details of story, of this story is that an old man's faith was taken from the love of money to seeing something that was entirely different, to seeing a vision of life that was centered on something very different, which is, and it was represented in that story as the spirit of Christmas. The nature, in other words, of Scrooge's ultimate concern was changed. He says, I will live in the past, the present, and the future, he repeated as he scrambled out of bed. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. Oh, Jacob Marley, heaven and the Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees, old Jacob, on my knees. He was so fluttered and so glowing with his good intentions that his broken voice could scarcely answer to his call. He had been sobbing violently in his conflict with the spirit, and his face was wet with tears. I don't know what to do, cried Scrooge, laughing and crying in the same breath. I am as light as a feather. I am as happy as an angel. I am as merry as a schoolboy. I am as giddy as a drunken man. A Merry Christmas to everybody, and a Happy New Year to all the world. Christians are people who have experienced the next world and have begun to bring that next world into the present, that they have died and gone to heaven, as it were, and still live here with what they have seen, still live here with the truths that reside and are held captive and protected in the heavenly realm. The way you look at life is radically altered if you're a Christian. Your relationship with things, with the past and the present and the future with happiness and sorrow themselves, is all radically shifted. Now, last week we saw that if you're a Christian, this is exactly what has happened. That because you are in Christ, that you have been buried and raised to new life. That you've been buried with Jesus. That you've seen ultimate death. That sure, there is hurt and there's pain and there's sorrow in this world but it doesn't compare with the evil and the injustice that was inflicted upon Jesus himself in the crucifixion. It changes your relationship with sorrow. It doesn't turn a blind eye toward it it, or pretend that it doesn't exist. It says, yes, that's hurtful, but look at what Jesus endured on my behalf. You've been buried with him. You've, in fact, died. What is physical death if you've died ultimately with Jesus? And on the other hand, you've been raised with him. You've experienced his triumph. You are held captive with him in heaven. Sure, there is beauty. Sure, there is loveliness. Sure, there is pleasure on the earth. And there are things that should be enjoyed with great pleasure. But you've seen ultimate joy. You've seen ultimate triumph. You've seen ultimate victory. It puts your great successes here in perspective. Enjoy them. Take pleasure in them, but they're no longer your ultimate source of joy. If you've died and been raised again with Jesus, it will radically reshape the way that you deal with success and adversity, with pleasure and pain, with gain and loss. All of these things take on a new reality because you look at them different, differently, because you've seen ultimate reality. You've seen ultimate truth. You've seen the final end of all things to come. You live here 
but your imagination has been captured by a different story. You live here, but you live here with the truth of there. It's very practical. It's very life-affirming. It's very pleasure-affirming. It's very things-affirming. But things are no longer your ultimate. They're no longer non-negotiables for your life because you've seen the ultimate truth. That's the essence. That's the essence of being heavenly-minded is that you live here with the truth of there. But what does it look like in practice? How do you cultivate it? How do you become heavenly-minded? And what will it look like as your life begins to be transformed? Well, as I mentioned in the introductory remarks, that Paul's custom, as is true in Romans and Galatians and mostly in Ephesians, that he writes these incredibly true things, this long list of what is true of God, the beautiful truths of the gospel. He elaborates on how beautiful Jesus is and how wonderful his mercy is. And he offers it to anyone who will receive it, to anyone that will take hold of it. And then he says, and those who do, and here's what it will look like. Here's what it will entail. Here's what your life will begin to reflect. Now, he gives here in Colossians a list of a variety of behaviors, variety of kind of modes of conduct. Now, why does he choose this particular list? It's not because these are the worst sins possibly imagined, but it's because they reveal the orientation of your heart. They, are, they reveal what you believe about ultimate reality. That's why he chooses these things. Sex, speech, how you treat others, especially those who are different from you. Those things are indicative of what really rests in your heart. The very center. We're calling you to put Christ at the center. These things, as you see, anger, rage, malice, prejudice. Your sexual life, as you inspect that, it reveals what is really ruling your heart. What's really at the center. In Pride and Prejudice, which I will admit I've never read, but I've seen the movie, (laughs) Jane says to her sister in the news of her engagement, she says, I am certainly the most fortunate creature who ever existed. Oh, Lizzie, why am I thus singled from my family and blessed above them all? If I could but see you as happy if there were but such another man for you. What is she saying to Lizzie? It's that your life will be complete like mine if you have a man. It's rather demeaning, rather belittling of her whole experience and her her whole uh, chances at happiness. But how does Lizzie respond? She doesn't respond out of hurt. She says, if you were to give me 40 such men, I could never be so happy as you. Till I have your disposition, your goodness, I can never have your happiness. Do you see what she's saying? I could have all of the greatest circumstances possible. possible. I could have the best husband. I could have 40 of them. I would not be happy until I have your disposition. I would not be happy until I have something new in my heart, until I have goodness. I don't need a man to be happy. I need to become a new person, she is saying. Happiness is not a matter of circumstances, but a matter of the orientation of your heart. When you get angry, when you become enraged, when you lash out in anger, when you lie, 
It's not because of your circumstances. The circumstances are simply the occasion that reveal what's actually ruling your heart. They reveal that something is deeply wrong. You could have 40 such men. You could have the best circumstances imaginable, but until the disposition of your heart, until the orientation of your soul is changed, they won't fulfill you. Two things have to happen. You have to be a totally new person, and you have to belong to a totally new purpose. (laughs) Is that all you say? Be a totally new person. Belong to a totally new purpose. God has to make you, first of all, into a new person. He has to change the disposition of your heart. He has to change the orientation of your soul. Notice in verse 9, do not lie to each other. Why? Don't lie because you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Now, wait a minute, you may say. I thought you said this was something that God has to do, that he has to give you a new soul, a new heart. But this seems to say that we are the agents of change. But this is baptismal language. The picture that he's drawing here is drawn because in in old times, often what would happen is the person would come for baptism and they would disrobe from their old, dirty, filthy clothes. And as they emerged, they would, from baptism, they would put on a new robe, a white robe, a clean robe set of clothing. It's baptismal language. It's not saying that in your power you have put off and put on. It's that in putting off and putting on, you have connected to God's power. It's baptismal language. You've entered into an entirely new way of being, an entirely new disposition of the heart. Therefore, do not lie, because lying betrays the fundamental new orientation of your personhood. You don't lie because Christ is now at your center. You have to be a new person in all of the places that it really matters, that God fundamentally has to come in and change your disposition. He takes away the old self and clothes you with newness. And then how do you learn to become this person? You're now a new being. You have been made new. How do you then become that person in practical life, in practical ways? He says, set your mind not on earthly things in in verse 2, but on things above, verse 4. Now, pause parenthetically. He is not saying that because anything, he is not saying look away from earthly things because everything that is temporal, everything that is earthly, everything that is physical is evil. or to be avoided. That's not what he's saying at all. What he is saying, what does it mean to set your mind on on something? Paul is saying that that you set your life upon it, that you make it your life. You set your happiness upon it. Your life's orientation is functionally arranged around something earthly, something temporary, something that will eventually disappear into dust. Don't set your minds on those things. Don't orient your life around that which is earthly. Your life's, what things, what objects, what people, what aspirations, if you were to lose them, would you think, I no longer have a life. My life is over. I've lost this thing, this person, this object, this dream. What thing have you staked your entire happiness upon? Those are the earthly things. 
It's not the fact that they're physical that makes them evil. It's the fact that you have made them into an idol. You've made them into an ultimate thing. How do we know what these things are? Well, he tells us. He gives us a diagnostic in verses 8 and 9. He says that you know the things, you know these things because when they are threatened, you get angry. That you're filled with rage or malice towards the person or the thing that is threatening your relationship with this object. You're willing to slander. You're willing to use filthy language, coarse language to curse and to control other people. You're willing to lie because you are the one that believes you are in control of ultimate reality and you are the only one that can ensure your happiness. So you're willing to lie to get it. You're willing to lie to protect your reputation. Normally, we respond in one of two ways when we see these things at work in our lives. First of all, we say, well, something is wrong with me. I am sinning and therefore I need to stop. Or maybe someone else will tell us that. Stop getting angry. Stop lying. And it's a very moralistic way to approach this. You're sinning and you should stop because it doesn't please God. Or secondly, something terrible has happened to you. Some wrong has been committed upon you, and therefore you really don't have much of a choice in the way that you respond. The first is moralistic, and this one is more therapeutic. You've had a bad childhood. You've had a bad uh, experience. You've had something terrible that's happened, and you have a deep woundedness, and so therefore you live out of that woundedness, and that manifests itself in anger, in lying, and so forth. Now, why do we respond in those two ways, or both at the same time? It's because both are partially true. You are sinning and you've been sinned against in some way. There's a moralistic application and a more of a therapeutic. But these diagnoses don't get to the root. And therefore, the gospel that Paul is articulating can't be the answer. Until we begin to see that our fundamental orientation of the heart is what is producing these behaviors, we can't fundamentally change. So either we redouble our efforts to get more and more of the thing that we desire, and that leads to addiction, or we take up a more stringent moral code. If I can just be more serious, then I'll stop this behavior. Ralph Waldo Emerson, who is no lover of the Orthodox Christian faith, says, the gods we worship write their names on our faces. Be sure of that. And a man will worship something, that which dominates will determine his life and character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. What we are worshiping, even Emerson gets this. What you set your heart upon, you will begin to resemble. You've got to look at that thing, if you're a Christian, and say, you are not my life. You pull back the curtain to see the little old man who's controlling Oz, and you say, you are not my life. You do not control me. I am in Christ. You begin to pull back the curtain, the veneer that gives this great picture of pleasure. If you can just have this, then you'll have it all. And to say, no, that's not true. I will want more and more and more until it puts me into a stressful way of life, a stressful pace of life. It'll destroy my relationships. It may even destroy me physically because I've given everything to have it. And you say, you are not my life. 
I'm happy if I have you, but you're not going to dominate me. You will not control me because Christ is at my center. Christ is my captor. Christ is my resurrection. My life is guarded with him. This is not an instantaneous healing, and it's often not a total healing, but it's a substantial healing over time. Taking your mind off earthly things and putting them on heavenly things allows you to move from rage to anger to frustration. It allows you to go from terror to fear to concern. Do you see? It's okay to be concerned about temporal things. It's okay to be concerned about your bank account, about your husband's health. It's okay. It's not okay to be terrorized by them if you're a Christian because Christ is all that you need. You can be disappointed when you lose something temporal, but it doesn't enrage you anymore. You can have concern about the future, but you're not terrified by it because you know Christ is your past and your present and your future, that your life is hidden with him, that you've already been crucified, dead, and buried. What could life do to you that would be worse? It doesn't turn a blind eye towards injustice or pain or suffering. It gives you a new reason to try to root out those things. And it gives you a new response and a new perspective. First of all, you have to be a totally new person. And then finally, you have to belong to a totally new purpose. One of the commentators, an Anglican priest that I read this, um, uh, this week, very well-known commentator from the 20th century, says, Thus, the new life is a fate accompli because of Christ. It's a free gift from God but it carries in it a challenge. If we accept that challenge, we begin to belong to the final event, to God's ultimate purpose. We have entered into the new covenant, but the process of becoming fully detached from the old and fully belonging to the new remains to be painfully and laboriously completed. Did you get what he said? When you get Jesus, when you're united to him, you begin to belong to the final event. You begin to belong to the ultimate story that encapsulates all other stories, that you're one with the ultimate hero who all of the, uh, the great hero myths point to, that in him they become true. Now, the Bible talks about Jesus' return in a variety of ways, and the one that seems to have taken hold in our popular imagination is that of Jesus coming with a big trumpet through the clouds like some sort of spaceman. It's a very cloudy type of thing. He comes on the clouds, and it resembles our understanding of what heaven is like. It, too, is a very cloudy place where we go to be in an unphysical place, spiritual beings that live among the clouds with Jesus. But here, instead of it saying Jesus is coming, as in many other passages, Paul uses appear, that Jesus appears, which means to make manifest or visible to make known what has been hidden or unknown, to take what is true in reality and bring it into this reality, to take ultimate reality into this world and to make it apparent that Jesus will appear, that his kingdom, his promises, his truth will all appear. Will he come on the clouds? I don't know. 
What Paul is talking about specifically and practically is not what's important to this. It's that he is merging the realms. He is merging what is true of him, that he sits at the right hand of God the Father. That that's true. That he's had ultimate and final victory. And it's not that Jesus comes from his realm to our realm to take us back to his realm. It's not that it's set, the, the gospel is not that you get Jesus and you go to heaven when you die. It's that Jesus comes with his realm and the truth that exists there and merges it perfectly with this realm. You see, it's a very physical, very life-affirming end that when Christ appears, who is your life, then you will also appear with him in glory. What is true of you if you're a Christian? What's held captive for you in heaven? What Jesus has taken to heaven on your behalf What is true of you spiritually will become true of you. It will burst out into reality, into this world, into this realm. You already possess life in him. You already possess a new life. And this new life, which is possessed invisibly, will then burst out in full reality. That you will begin to be able to see it for what it really is. Not just hints, not just signs, not just little bits of progress in your spiritual journey, but everything, ultimate pleasure, ultimate joy, ultimate reality will begin to burst into this world. That's what Paul is saying. That's the hope of glory. That's the hope of the second coming, is that Jesus brings his truth here, and it explodes in visibility. Until then, set your hearts Set your minds, allow your imagination to be liberated, to see Christ's victory for what it is, to expect it, to live expectant lives as if it will one day, maybe tomorrow, become true in reality. Allow your vision of life, your orienting orienting worldview, your most basic commitments be directed towards Jesus' rule at the right hand of God. Or as Jesus himself would say, strive first for the kingdom of heaven and all of these other things will be given for you. You see, there's two parts of that. Strive first, change your basic commitment. Your most fundamental hope is in Jesus and his kingdom. And all these other things, these physical things are fine and good. And it's all well and good to enjoy them, but they're not ultimate things. They're secondary. What happened with Scrooge? He had a heavenly vision, an angelic vision, a spiritual vision. And what had happened in his life? He came to life. He became more human than he ever was before. He came to life and he began to pull what is true of the other world into the new world. If you're a Christian, you live here, but your imaginations have been captured by the there They've been captured by another story. You live here, but you live by the truth of there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for altering our reality or what we think of reality. Thank you for not being content to allow us to make up our ideas about what you are and what you should be and how you should work in the world. Father, thank you for letting the true story be so much better than any story we could ever invent. It's challenging, and it's hard, and I pray you would give us strength 
I pray you would give us the ability to believe even when things seem rather far-fetched. Give us hope in your second coming and let us live as your people in the here and now in a way that changes it, that your ultimate reality, what is true in heaven, would change the way we live today in the here and now. Father, we pray for your people who worship everywhere. We pray that you would become more real to all of us, that your promises, that your mission, that your purposes would reign in our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.